I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Cinematic Universe, the podcast that's all about comic book movies, which you can now find at cinematicuniverse.com. I'm Joe Cunningham and joining me to help make sense of the comics behind the movies are... Sad Patrick. And Caroline Cedar. Hooray, Caroline's back and on a main episode as well. Caroline, <laughs> you've, become our, you've become our Marvel Netflix correspondent. I know, I'm excited to be, to be discussing a film for once. And also, yeah, so, what... so on with me for the first time because I don't watch oh, the yeah. Netflix shows. I was shows, realizing so I'm that never too. On those episodes. I know, and yet I feel like I know you so well from listening to you. <laughs> That's crazy. Because last time you were on a main episode was Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, which must be over two years ago now, maybe. It was a yes because it was a it was a Birth of Lois fill-in episode. Ah, yeah. there we go. One of our first guest ones, I think. Yeah. Um, so Caroline, um, in case any of our listeners haven't listened to an episode with you on before, um, do you want to either remind them or tell them for the first time who you are and then maybe tee up what film we're discussing on today's show? So I am a pop culture writer and you can find my work at places like the AV Club and Boing Boing and Quartz. And today we'll be discussing one of the, I would say approximately, um, one of the two dozen genre franchises that Carl Urban has found himself in. But today, specifically, <laughs> it's um, the 2012 movie Dread. Um, excellent. And you, you kind of, you suggested this film to us as one of the one of the comic book movies that you were interested in discussing. What what is it about Dread that you wanted to uh, that that would particularly appeal to you? Well, I just entirely randomly watched this movie. I think it was on Netflix a couple years ago, and I knew very little about it didn't really know the comic had never seen the version from 19 from the 90s um and i just really loved it i was really surprised by how much i loved it actually and so i just thought it would be a fun one to talk about i think it's got a lot of flaws a lot of <laughs> strengths and i'm like really i'm actually genuinely excited to to hear what you guys have to say about it as well yeah me too i've also never seen the 90s stallone version seb you well, definitely really? have <laughs> oh yeah yeah no never. I'm, I'm already looking forward to the day we do that on the podcast as well um some of the early 90s films i've never seen the dolph Lundgren <laughs> punisher either like that, that's the kind of era that i'm weak on when it comes to this stuff i mean all i mean it, it, it obviously won't go into too much it gets a pretty negative rap it's not without its redeeming features they're just not very many, but it does have some. It's an interesting <laughs> failure. Well, Caroline, maybe we'll have to have you back for that episode yeah. two years from now. <laughs> I'll become the dread expert. <laughs> the dread. Okay. Um, 
Well, on with the show now. Um, so we'll first discuss the latest comic book movie and TV news, and then we'll dive into our spoiler-filled discussion of Pete Travis's, not Alex Garland's, 2012 <laughs> movie Dread. I'm sure that's something we'll be discussing as, <laughs> as part of the film discussion. But before any of that, I'm going to ask Seb to explain a comic book concept that, as a movie fan, I just do not understand. Now, Seb, I thought we'd stick with 2000 AD and Judge Dredd. Um, I'm pretty sure, fairly recently, in fact, I got you to explain 2000 AD in general to me. (laughs) Um, I'd probably forgotten all of that because I was going to ask you to explain it again. (laughs) But instead, I thought I'd go granular and get you to explain something about Judge Dredd that uh, I don't think plays into this movie. At least I don't think it does. Um, From looking at the Wikipedia page, I was reading something about Dark Judges. So, who are the dark judges, and uh, should we be afraid? Um, well, they they are quite, un- unless you're Judge Dredd, they are quite scary. Um, they're, they're, <laughs> and and I mean that specifically in a, a particular moment, uh, which you may or may not get to read in the future spoilers. Um, Ooh, teaser in, involving uh, <laughs> Judge Dredd and and one of the dark judges uh, who is I think is he just called Fear. Um, but the yeah, so the Dark Judges, the original of the Dark Judges is Judge Death, um, and he was brought in. I mean, he is basically just like a, a, you know, the aim is to create a kind of dark mirror of Judge Dredd. I think is is you know what he was brought in for. He's from um, another dimension where basically uh, he's he's this kind of ghost spirit skeleton type creature. I'm not sure. I've never read. I think there are stories that explain how he became that way. Um, but basically, he's from a, uh, a universe where um, he, uh, where essentially he made it so that life itself is a crime, and so killed <laughs> everybody. Um, and so him, he, and the other dark judges go around from dimension to dimension, um, finding people guilty of the crime of life and killing them. Essentially, um, he. I think he mainly does this by like possessing people. Because as I say, he's like he's a, he's a ghostly figure, um, and he's just he's just. I mean, he's an amazing bit of of character design in that you've got what is already a great piece of character design, which is the dread costume, uh, and you know it's this horrible skeletal figure in a skeletal version of the dread costume with that sort of what looks like a portcullis gate over the eyes. Um, and his fellow dark judges are uh, Judge Fire, Judge Fear, and Judge Mortis. Um, okay. And yeah, they are just basically, um, well, they kind of do what their name suggests, really. Um, so. <laughs> so they're like, to, to drop another kind of niche British sci-fi reference, they are like a more fascistic version of the Inquisitor from Red Dwarf. Little bit actually, and actually design wise, not dissimilar. I, I wouldn't be surprised if there was a bit of, especially because if I think of the people who were creating um, costume and character and effects designs for Red Dwarf, would almost certainly have been 2000 AD readers in childhood. So I bet there is a bit of influence in the design there. Um, and actually, right. it's funny. It's funny you mentioned Dwarf because the the other Dark Judges. Um, just make me think of the Apocalypse Boys from Come Men of the Apocalypse. <laughs> Caroline, any of that make any sense to you? No, I was hoping I would. Some of my obscure British knowledge would come in, but unfortunately, Red Dwarf is not is not one of my uh, specialties. <laughs> oh, Caroline, we should do a podcast where Seb and I explain Red Dwarf to you. I would love that. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
so you you did say caroline that you you kind of knew nothing about judge dread when you were watching this movie for the first time have you have you got any more knowledge since then because i certainly feel like i know nothing beyond the films well, I read the Wikipedia page today, so that's nice. the extent of my knowledge. Actually, my biggest question, I was, I was proud of myself for guessing this, I was wondering if it was, having known nothing about it, if it was a British series, just based on how the movie unfolds, and it turns out it is, so I was happy that I, that I my, whatever British knowledge I've managed to retain sort of pointed <laughs> that out to me. Um, so yeah, that was, that was sort of, I'm very, I've always been really interested in sort of British culture and American culture and how they match up and differ and all those things. And I think like, I'm particularly interested in this series, this movie, and I guess the comics as well as like a British perspective of an American world or an American dystopia. And then Mm. specifically like how we as British and American audiences sort of perceive that not to get like super boring and intellectual about it, but I'm, I'm very curious in that aspect. Yeah, I think that is something we'll definitely discuss, particularly because, like, if James was here, James normally removes all the nuance from this, but I think the (laughs) British and American perspective on guns and guns in these Mm -hmm. kind of movies as well is interesting. And that's, I think that's certainly something that Dread trades on. Yeah, yeah, I'm very fascinated in that as well. And, like, what, how, I think there, there are certain things that, in to a British culture maybe feel more like heightened or imaginary and to an American culture or viewer feel like real life especially in terms of the like judge jury and execution and in one lens it's sort of like oh what if the world was like this and and then through an American lens it's more like oh this is the world that we kind of have in a really grim way um, and yeah. as an American living in America right now, yeah. what is it like living in a fascist dystopia? Yeah, <laughs> that's a good question. <laughs> may or may not have had a mental breakdown on the phone with a health insurance um, company the other day that ended with me asking him to please remove Donald Trump from the from the presidency when he asked if there was anything else he could do for me. It's, it's funny, actually, that um, you mentioned that comparison because, not to spoiler the other thing that I'm going to recommend that you read, but... Um, there is so, there is a certain Judge Dredd story that has been brought up in relation to what's going on in America at the moment. Oh, God. Well, um, I look forward to all of that. I hope, <laughs> I, I hope we don't have to mention Trump too much on this podcast. Um, but I definitely don't think we're going to do during the news section. So let's move on to the, to the happy, safe confines of the news section. Um, and just uh, two pieces of news on this podcast. Um should point out there's been a bunch of news in the last couple of pod- in the last couple of weeks you can hear a, a load of that on the minisode that that um came out last week and also just drop another plug in here at cinematicuniverse.co.uk where we are currently doing lots of news pieces and features and reviews and you should go check that out because um we're, we're very pleased with how it's going so far so please I do feel like people who who listen to the podcast and don't go to the website and who listen to us for the news are going to get annoyed at us saying go and read the news on the website but if you if you only listen to the podcast and don't read the website please go and read it's the a website. great website <laughs> and, and please do so with your ad blocker turned on <laughs> i'm an objective third party and i can say it's a great website <laughs> thank you and we're always covering the main news items on the podcast and there's not there's nothing really that i'm missing out so if you do listen to podcasts you'll get the news you'll just get more of it on the on the website 
Um, okay, so we'll start off with, um, I think, probably the biggest piece of news from the past fortnight or so. Um, and that's all of the news around X-Men Dark Phoenix. Um, and now some of this we, we've kind of been expecting for months. Um, so Brian Singer is, in fact... Passing the torch onto longtime X Men producer Simon Kinberg, um, he will now be directing X Men Dark Phoenix. That is the title of the movie as well. Um, all of the cast who kind of had their contracts expiring after Apocalypse are coming back. So we've got uh, Michael Fassbender, James McAvoy, Jennifer Lawrence, um, Nicholas Holt, uh, Sophie Turner, and and that kind of new batch of characters who were introduced in Apocalypse as well. Um, and I think in terms of that hero shot that we got right at the end of X-Men Apocalypse of kind of like, this is the team moving forward. Um, the only character who wasn't announced as part of the cast was um, Quicksilver, so the actor Evan Peters. Um, we'll get on to the, the potential villain casting in a minute, but what do you guys think about all of that? I mean, Caroline, you're, we've discussed in the past, you're a, you're a big X-Men fan. Um, you've been following this franchise closely for a long time. Um, are you excited for what Dark Phoenix could be, given all of that news? Well, I feel like I have felt every emotion you could possibly feel about this announcement. Because not only am I a massive X-Men fan, but I am specifically such a massive Jean Grey fan. Like, she is far and away my favorite comic book character. I've just always loved her so much. And so the idea of a film centered around her is super exciting to me. Mm. Um, on the other hand, I thought... Sophie Turner, who I love on Game of Thrones, was objectively horrible in X-Men Apocalypse, <laughs> which makes me very nervous about this going forward. I also have very conflicting thoughts about Simon Kimberg, because I think when you just look at his resume, he's kind of an annoying choice. Like, it seems like he's done a lot of bad work and been forgiven for it, which happens a lot in Hollywood and is very annoying. On the other hand, I've heard interviews with him, and specifically... But the first interview I ever heard with him was on the Empire Film Podcast. And mm. he just seems like a very thoughtful and likable and practical person when you actually hear him speak. And the way he sort of like talked about the choice to undo a lot of X-Men Last Stand in Days of Future Past and him admitting how much of Last Stand was a mistake. That actually made me really like him in a way that his actual <laughs> film <laughs> output hasn't. So again, like I guess we can just go with hopeful, but maybe not the most optimistic about this it, film. It's interesting, isn't it? Because if you compare it to like some of the other franchises, like the Spider-Man franchise, you would never want Abby Arad stepping up and directing mm -hmm. a Spider-Man film. And similarly, Kevin Feige feels like much more of a kind of like wider franchise architect who is great at producing, who you probably wouldn't want to direct a film because that's not what he does. Whereas even in that kind of greater franchise architect role, Simon Kinberg doesn't really seem to be that to the same extent like it feels like he has his his like fingerprints more on the core x-men films than he does on some of the other stuff like logan which felt more, much more like it was driven by jackman and um mm -hmm. and james mangold or even um i'm thinking fantastic four which he was ostensibly a producer on but like i remember the writer was... on yeah as, at least well i think everyone was but i mean because yeah. there was there was like a comment from him the week of release on that film of like i've seen a i've seen a final cut and it's not a disaster which doesn't <laughs> seem like someone who has been like shepherding that start to finish does it yeah um so yeah i think it's that's probably hard to judge um seb what do you reckon about getting all of these characters back are you glad that we've got fast mender mcavoy lauren settle returning or um, do you have preferred to see something a little bit different 
I, I do think it's interesting that um, that they haven't got Quicksilver, or at least haven't said that they've got Quicksilver. And my main thought with that is that um, they've run out of ways to have him only be in it a bit without being in the whole thing and being too powerful for to stop events from happening. Uh, do you think they're saving the him maybe problem. for... Maybe he's got a major role in the Gambit movie. Schedule conflicts or something. <laughs> yes, maybe he will definitely be in the in the Gambit movie that, that, that will definitely happen. Um, it's a bit... It does kind of feel like... I mean, you know, I, I love McAvoy and Fassbender playing those characters. Um, I like Jennifer Lawrence a lot generally, although I have felt that as the X-Men movies have gone on, there has been an increasing feeling of her not like the films are desperate for her to be there because she's a massive bankable star. She does not seem especially desperate to be in those films. And I think it was really showing in apocalypse, despite the fact that apocalypse was making her even more integral to the formation of the X-Men. Um, Mm. but yeah, having, having got that ending, um, at the end of apocalypse, you know, for all that didn't work about some of those younger versions of the characters, and I agree that Sophie Turner wasn't great, but I I did like um, the sparks of her relationship with Scott, and I thought the two of them, there was something interesting going on there and actually getting to see that relationship develop, but maybe that's because I'm a big fan of old-school Scott and Jean and and that relationship, so... um, Me too. Yeah, it was was nice to actually see that developing from the ground up rather than Mm. um, the situation in the earliest X-Men films where you're just like, what is... Funky Janssen doing with this guy he's not interesting um disagree <laughs> I love Cyclops <laughs> I love Cyclops no. generally I'm I, I don't think he was very well served by the films yet um but yeah so you know I I, I think I it feels a bit like a bit of a retrograde step you know and again Fastbender is great in that role but does he really need to keep on coming back um, you kind of do need McAvoy. Do you need think, Magneto but... in a Dark Phoenix story? That's what I'm not wondering. really. No. no, because it's not. It's it. The whole point of those stories is that they moved the X Men into a completely different direction and set up this whole world of external stuff for them. Um, and, and I've know... just watched an X Men movie where they had nothing to have Magneto do. <laughs> And like yeah, watching and... watching Michael Fassbender wasted is is worse than having him not there at all. I think. <laughs> I mean, and he... also if they're just going to give him another wife to kill off, like it's just going to get <laughs> uh, redundant yeah. at that point. You know what I mean? How and many also, more family members? How many more trauma can they put him through? How can you do the the Charles and Lilandra relationship if you've got Charles's boyfriend hanging around as well? You know, <laughs> he needs to be off the table so they can really commit to that one. Okay, let's talk about Lalandra then, who, um, I mentioned this in the mini-sode, um, is being kind of like teased in casting reports as the villain. Um, given the X-Men Dark Phoenix storyline in the comics, you would think more antagonist than villain, right? Um, and also, we should note, uh, the original rumours included Angelina Jolie on casting wish lists, but now it's looking fairly certain that Jessica Chastain will be playing the role. Um, so a disappearance of Eleanor Rigby, parts one and two reunion for James <laughs> McAvoy and Jessica Chastain. That's what all the superhero movie fans wanted. This announcement made me realize that I would have loved an alternate universe where Jessica Chastain played Jean Grey. Yes. I think that would have been such good casting. Yeah. Oh, perfect. Um, but I, I, I guess, I mean, Lalandra seems like she is a fairly pivotal character in the comics. So she she could still be she could still be doing some you know fairly major stuff here and I I don't know is this could this all be a ruse uh, Seb could like 
Jessica Chastain be like a physical manifestation of the Dark Phoenix Force? Could it not be overpowering Jean Grey in the way that we expect it to be? Could there, I mean, could there be any twists in that in that direction? There, there is something about. I mean, it could just be coincidence, but um, there is a bit of a physical resemblance, like not you know not just the hair color. Um, that you wonder if they could be doing something with, like you know, that it could be a very deliberate piece of casting to cast someone who is a little bit reminiscent of who they've got playing Jean. Yeah. Um, so can I can I just clarify something about the Phoenix as well? Because I'm you not can sure try, this will be but obvious we might need James for this, or, or Caroline might have an effects <laughs> knowledge for this. Well, I don't. I don't think specialism. it's. <laughs> I don't think it's very deep. It's just that in the original X Men trilogy, obviously, kind of Jean Grey was resurrected with the phoenix force and it wasn't really clear where it had come from or anything like that but she was just she was back and she was evil now and it was kind of it was kind of implied that that was always within her i guess that 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 was always there which is kind of what we saw with sophie turner's version as well at the end of the last film but in the comics it's more like the phoenix force is something external which takes over the character because of her power set i think am i right in thinking that and then that that's kind of like that the Phoenix Force has at other times taken over other people as well. That that latter part, I, I, I'm sure, is the case. What I'm not certain of is whether, and again, Caroline, you may know this, whether, yes, it is something that possesses her, but is it not something that's always possessed her pretty much, like, since she was born, or I don't know. Um we need, we do need James, don't we, to get, to get <laughs> granular on the Phoenix Force. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't know either, but... Joe, your summary sounded right to me that it was a third, an outsider force that hadn't necessarily always been with her. But I don't feel one hundred percent sure saying that's the case. <laughs> For all of that, though, it, you know, whatever the outcome is, if it's Jessica Chastain as straight villain, if it's Jessica Ta- Chastain in some kind of manifestation of the Phoenix Force, if it's Jessica Chastain uh, doing romancy but slightly villainy stuff with James McAvoy. I'm down for all of that, and I, Jessica Chastain is fantastic, and I'm glad that we are seeing her pop up in a movie that is uh, hashtag relevant to our interests. Although, on the other hand, Oscar Isaacs is also fantastic, and yeah. then you see what they did with him in Apocalypse, <laughs> and then, again, I'm less optimistic. Uh, when was the last good X-Men villain? Because, like, was it Brian Cox? Because other than that, it's just been Magneto, really, hasn't it? Yeah, and Magneto doesn't really count beyond the first film as a villain Peter, anyway. Peter Dinklage, so. Kevin Bacon, they they were kind of like ad, adjuncts to their own movies. Mm. Kevin Bacon almost. Kevin Bacon just for the way he says chocolate. <laughs> I hate is. Kevin Bacon in that movie, but I know that other people like him more than I do. I think he's fine. <laughs> also, I looked it up on Wikipedia, and the Phoenix Force comes is a cosmic entity that comes when Jean Grey is dying and she calls out for help. So it is something that enters her life mm. as an adult in the comics. Right. Oh, well, we will find out. And, I mean, generally, it sounds like space might be more of a... Set, oh, it's also set in the 90s, so by this point, how old are Fassbender and Michael? Yeah, jeez, <laughs> they're playing, like, 50-year-old men. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, we, we did talk about this on, on, the, on a recent X-Men podcast, didn't we, where it's just, yeah, we've now reached a point where... They're playing those characters only a few years before McKellen yeah. and Stewart first. <laughs> yeah. are That's to a rough them. couple. The late 90s are real <laughs> rough on those two. I also demand that it opens to the theme tune from the 90s X-Men cartoon yeah. as well. No dice otherwise. Um, okay, we'll move on to our second piece of news. And this uh, was, uh, I think, uh, a couple of weekends ago now. But we got our first look at Black Panther, the first Black Panther teaser trailer. Um 
I've got a massive crush on Michael B. Jordan in this trailer. What about you guys? <laughs> Who doesn't? Just all the time. I know, but that haircut and that like <laughs> scowl. Was, the the rehabilitation of, of human torches um, continues yeah. apace. <laughs> I'd like them to rehabilitate everyone from, uh, well, maybe not everyone. But we, we could we could do with maybe like some Chickless and some Miles Teller in the MCU. Miles Teller would be perfect for the MCU. Like introduce him as Tony Stark's long lost son. Or oh something. yeah. <laughs> I've still well this this was a you know a pitch I made on the website long ago. But Miles Teller to play Jack Knight Starman in a Starman TV series. Was that the perfect. version I read of the character? Yes. Yeah, leather jacket the guy, guy. Who's the junk dealer? Leather jacket guy. Yeah. Yeah. Miles Teller. Yeah, that that'd work. I like that. Uh, but Black Panther though. Um, yeah. Aside from crushing on Michael B. Jordan, is is everyone is everyone else thinking that this looks as good as I do? Because I I kind of loved just the the style and the swagger of this trailer. Yeah, I um, think it looks start to finish. I think it looks amazing. I think it's also one of the first Marvel movies that's really looked like as much as I love the MCU and I really do. It's sort of like. I don't know, like eating a bunch of like chips or something like it, it. Sometimes it can all just blend together and it's enjoyable, but you're like, is this actually substantial? And this movie looks like it has such a specific style um, mm. and maybe is more director led than we've seen of these movies in the past, which is super exciting to me. I was such a massive fan of Ryan Coogler's Creed. I just, I mean, again, speaking of yes. crushes on Michael B. Oh. Jordan, I just was, I, uh, that was a franchise too. I was not super familiar with Rocky. I just came into that one cold and I just like fell in love with that film. So the common, the, the Michael B. Jordan, the Ryan Coogler, really the entire cast. Yeah. I don't, I don't think I could be more excited for a film than I am excited for this one. It, it does kind of seem that the, the, the thing of like these really distinctive visuals is kind of becoming a bit of a theme for, for this era of the MCU. Mm-hmm. Um, because you've had Guardians 2 where James Gunn was allowed to really cut loose and just throw all the colours at the screen that he wanted mm-hmm. to. Uh, we've got Thor Ragnarok, which while not a, at the moment not looking a million miles away from Guardians 2 certainly looks like, again, Taika Waititi has been able to you know, really push that in its own direction. It's got this own, its own very distinctive look. Um, and yeah, now Black Panther. Again, you know, they, they've all got bright, colourful looks to them but in quite different ways and they yeah they all seem to be about creating a bit of a bit of a visual feast in the settings uh, which does you know make a bit of a change from new york really so. yeah but i think this is this is this feels particularly different because it is a completely new setting that we're in africa mm. or we're in wakanda which is a world that like like james gunn was able to with the cosmic marvel stuff completely build it from the ground up um and yeah i i, I thought the that it looked great. Um, I thought the costumes looked great, uh, like Forest Whitaker's makeup, um, and and yeah, just like uh, you said, like that cast top to bottom. You go through that yeah. trailer and you keep seeing new characters, and even like Letitia Wright, who's probably one of the least known members of that cast, when she turns up as Shuri in that trailer, I was like, oh my god, who is that character? Make her the Black Panther now. <laughs> <laughs> With those like Panther gauntlets and ah. Oh. Angela Bassett with the white hair, making us regret that she never got cast as Storm as she was so almost almost was years ago. I was just going to say, I feel like it's so rare to see this many women in a Marvel trailer or movie in general. Like, such props to Ryan Coogler and the creative team Mm. for, you know, I feel like we're so used to one, maybe two women, and this is just, like, chock full of them. And, I mean, I think it's single-handedly 
doubling, if not tripling, if not quadrupling the number of black women in the MCU, like single handedly after <laughs> like, yeah. you know, how many years has this has this has the MCU been going on? Like, you know, props to them for doing so much in such a short amount of time. And women of colour whose faces haven't been painted a different yeah. colour as well, which is nice. <laughs> yeah. I I find it I find the the I found the framing of the trailer really interesting with having this opening um with um Everett Ross and Claw and yeah. the sort of like the only two white guys who you see in the whole trailer being these two guys at the start who are sort of a bit confused by it all and and a bit intimidated by the idea of Wakanda and they're sort of they're they're the entry point for the trailer into then throwing this stuff at you and yeah I don't it feels to me like it was kind of deliberately making a bit of a thematic point and that like these two guys at the start were sort of the 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 side of comic book nerd them that's that got quite annoyed by this trailer um the people well, who sort it. of Oh well, there were. I I did. See, I mean, it may have only been in isolation, but I did see a comment from somebody saying that they thought it was ridiculous that Wakanda looked so technologically advanced, and that kind of thing. Is so, that not? Is um, that not what Wakanda is in Marvel? Well, yes, but I think they were more making, uh, trying to make a point about Africa, um, and yeah, well, you know, and just yeah, you know, the, the volume of female characters and that kind of thing is, you know, I I think this is a film that is it is going just by the nature of what it is to rub the wrong kind of people up the wrong way and right. it doesn't seem afraid of that fact or ashamed yeah. of that fact um, in the way that Wonder Woman wasn't as well we talked about that line in Wonder Woman that was guaranteed to piss off a certain number of, of members of the audience and it did you know hmm. I mean I would I would hope that the immediate reactions to the kind of the casting and when the, the hashtag Black Panther so lit got trending on Twitter that that gave that emboldened Marvel even further to go, hey, we've got an audience who are crying out for this movie, mm. and we should make it for them. Um, and you I know. mean, but that's that's been obvious since he turned up in Civil War, um, you yeah. know, and 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 the glimpses that we got of, of him and the people around him. Um, everybody wanted to see more of that, so you know, it, it's giving us that, which is great. Mm. I mean, and I think this continues the trend for me of um, continuing to look forward to these individual Marvel movies and individual movies full stop in superhero cinema more than the crossover movies. Because, like, this is the film next year that comes out before Avengers Infinity War. And that movie, just thinking about it, gives me a migraine. Like, Scarlett Hansen was talking about 30 Marvel characters in one scene at one point, And I was like, oh... <laughs> it's gonna be a mess, isn't it? Like, how can it, how can it not be a mess? Mm. Uh, but I mean, we'll have to wait and see. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm very much looking forward to Black Panther, and it sounds like you guys are as well, based on this. Plus, this trailer gives us a Bilbo Gollum reunion scene, which we didn't even know we needed. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> amazing. Um, okay, uh, well that's it for our comic book movie uh, news section and we'll move on now to our discussion of Dread. Um, so what we'll do is we'll take a little listen to the trailer now and we'll return with our spoiler-filled discussion after that. 800 million people living in the ruin of the old world. Only one thing fighting for order in the chaos. 
men and women of the Hall of Justice. Peachtree's is the manufacturing base for all the slow-mo in Mega City One. You know how often we get a judge up in Peachtree's? Well, you got one now. She has control of everything. Levels one to 200. This is Mama. Somewhere in this block are two judges. That's not good. I want him dead. We're gonna have to go through him. Rookie, you ready? Yeah. You look ready. Fire! Judgment time. Let's finish this. Negotiations over. The sentence is death. Okay, uh, so that was uh, the trailer for Dread. Um, so, as I mentioned before, uh, released in 2012, um, directed by Pete Travis. Uh, but the name that kind of swirled around this film the most at the time, and you know, since, because I almost wrote down on the document that I prepared for this podcast, Alex Garland's 2012 Alex film. Garland's yeah. yeah. He tried so, to get a credit, didn't he? What, um, a directing credit? He tried to get a co-director credit. Right. Um, but because he hadn't overseen any shooting, he'd only taken over in editing. And then it's, I mean, well, you describe it. I think they rolled back as well on, I think he rolled back on some of what he'd been saying. I think they realised that the message that was being put out was going to potentially harm it. So there was a sort of a bit of a detente afterwards yeah. where he was like, oh, no, yeah, it is. It is Pete's vision as well. kind of thing. Yeah. Um, for anyone who doesn't know who Alex Garland is, so he's the screenwriter of this movie. Uh, he produced it as well. Um, and um, so most recently he'll be known for, um, I think, writing and directing Ex Machina. Um, which is a really fantastic uh, sci-fi film starring uh, Donald Gleeson, who turns up in this, uh, Alicia Vikander and Oscar Isaac, uh, which came out two years after this. Um, But before Dread was known, um, he wrote the novel for The Beach, which got him on Danny Boyle's radar when Danny Boyle adapted that. He then wrote the screenplay for 28 Days Later. Um, I think probably most notably Sunshine, which is a film that I'm constantly thinking about when we do these superhero movies because it feels like something that hmm. is constantly being held up as a as a reference point for these levels of movies. It was the film that that kind of announced both Rose Byrne and Chris Evans to me as like legit big blockbuster movie actors um, who had a, a huge amount of talent. Um, he then also wrote Never Let Me Go, which is another film I really love, um, and that was that was all before Dread. Uh, so then, yeah, with Dread, he writes, produces, and as Severs just explained, probably had um, a small amount, if not a large amount, of influence on the on the visual luck of the film as well. Um, so yeah, I mean, uh, Caroline, do you, do you have do you have much uh, much in the way of uh, relationship with Alex Garland's previous work or with Ex Machina or whatever? Or and and did you feel his his touch on this? Yeah, I 
I think Alex Garland is the rare sort of filmmaker, screenwriter, whatever, who I just feel like I am 100% on his level. Like, whenever I see one of his films, I feel like I get so much out of them. I love, I really love Never Let Me Go, just, like, emotionally wrecked me. I love Sunshine. Yeah. I love 28 Days Later. Ex Machina was one of my favorite films of 2015. Like, I, I'm once I found out he did this movie, I was like, oh, that's why I like Dread so much. I guess for all of its flaws, <laughs> and I think it probably is the weakest of his filmography. I think that there are little hints of things that are just really, really great and smart um, and like kind of subversive in a way. And I've heard him, I've heard interviews with him as well, where he sort of talked about how ultimately directing a film really is like a very collaborative experience. experience. And I've also heard the Wachowskis talk about this as well. And that, and that in some ways it's unfair that a film has to be labeled as being directed by one person and sure in some mm. cases that is true and you have a real auteur but in a lot of cases particularly on these big action movies it really is kind of like a group effort and that maybe we're sort of limiting our understanding of how films are made by being so specific about labeling like this is the one person who directed it and they get all of the credits for its strengths and weaknesses mm. i mean uh, to, to mention the director though that uh, pete travis he his kind of main directing credit before this in terms of film was vantage point uh which is a, a terrible movie um and and hasn't directed kind of anything major since he's done british tv stuff like that um it's easy to it's easy to you know go to alex garland because he's the bigger name but there is there is just a sense from everything that was around this movie at the time and you know looking at the careers of the two guys that that Alex Garland kind of is the author here, and in, in a way, in a way that some screenwriters are able to transcend that. I'm thinking like um, Aaron Sorkin and all the arguments mm-hmm. that went on around the social network about whether that was a Fincher film or a Sorkin film. It's it's almost it's it's kind of like the the role that that Pete Travis has on this film is kind of the role that directors on TV, especially over here yeah. where the writer is king, which you know maybe didn't used to as much be the case in America. I think it's becoming so now. You know, directors on TV over here do not often get a lot of attention paid to them at all. It's only on certain things, and it's only when you have someone like Rachel Talalay coming and doing episodes of Doctor Who that people go, oh, that was directed by Rachel Talalay, and that was really stylish. Or someone but, is able to stand out by literally their work transcend- clearly yeah. tr- visually transcending the other stuff. But then again, you don't know how much collaboration has gone in with the writers, do you? Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it, it's you know, um, it's 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 always seemed to be a thing that you know in in TV the the writer is the creative force and the director is a hired hand and in in film the writer is treated as a hired hand a lot of the time and the director is has the vision here this very much has it the other way around you know I mean I think as well probably because this was you know this was Garland's pet project for years and years like he had he'd been working mm. on a, on a script for this before it was really in development I think. Um, you know, it was, he he wanted to do a Judge Dredd movie, um, and so he's, he he's a huge Dredd fan, isn't he? Yeah, um, I found it interesting actually that, that um, apparently Duncan Jones was approached for it, but he he his he said that his vision didn't click with Garland's vision for it at all. I think I gathered he would probably have wanted to go much more in the direction of going for the weird. Um, and the kind of black comedy stuff that the comics do sometimes, um, which I think I, I mean I don't know how you know how quickly you want to get into this, but I think that, I think there's an interesting point about dread and about how um, 
we talked about this a little bit when we were talking about the Mega City One TV series and how um, the guys from Rebellion said, "Oh, and we're going to make sure it's got the satirical elements in it." Mm. Um, but I think the thing with Dread is that Judge Dread was conceived definitely as as satire, and he's a you know he's partly a pastiche of like a Clint Eastwood vigilante type character, and he's you know very much a, a satire of an authoritarian state. But I think I said this when we were talking about Mega City One that. You can do dread stories that don't have the satirical element. You can de- you can definitely do funny Judge Dread stories that that are practically lampooning the character and the setup. But you can also do, and a lot of the best Dread stories are actually they might have gags in them, and this film has gags in it. But it plays Dread himself very straight, and and you're on his mm. side even though he's a fascist cop who's going around shooting a load of people. And so I don't think that the take that this film has is invalid but it's also not the only take that you can have on dread um is he he a batman is he a batman character seb i think he's more of a rorschach character um but no yeah yeah, uh, but yeah yeah, no he's he's a batman character yeah in in the sense of i think you can do not as many different interpretations as you can with batman but yeah i think you know as i say i i even think coming back to the the stallone one that the 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 approach that the Stallone one takes and the ridiculous camp of some of it is also a completely valid way to do Judge Dredd. And there are, I think there are some visual elements that the Stallone film does better than this one. It's mm. just that that film fails on so many other levels, mm. uh, whereas this is much tighter and stronger as a film in its own right. So you can you can kind of look past the fact that it's, it's, it, it's definitely not presenting you with a whole version of Dredd. It's a quite... You know, it's one day in the life of Judge Dredd, and it's one particular yeah. case, and it happens to be a pretty dark and serious one. But for all we know, the next day he could have been fighting some ridiculous alien mutant creature. You know? Yeah. So, I, I guess, I guess, I mean, Caroline already already told us like kind of her general thoughts on the film when we we began. Um, I'm just thinking back to when I saw this film for the first time and I saw it in cinemas um, and I remember walking out of the film and going like, do you know what? I liked that, but I don't think I liked it as much as everyone else. And I don't think I could shake the feeling that I knew I knew that Judge Dredd was a satirical property and felt like the movie it has hints at that satire and it has hints that we shouldn't entirely be rooting for dread in everything that he does and we shouldn't be like tacit tacitly kind of approving of his behavior the whole way through the film but it just it just felt to me like it was a like a gateway story into dread that like hey here is an example of a dread story you'll get all the rest of that stuff if we get to make more movies or mm. if you go read the comic but the film in and of its own right feels limited and it is it is it is almost intentionally that because it's so brisk and because it is so self-contained there's so few characters the world is introduced through a voiceover and then we see nothing of it other than a tower block so it's you know it it, that's yeah that's what it is so it feels it feels wrong to criticize it for not being more but also it's it's not more it's not more i mean it's you know it's a it's a film that's trying to recreate a ridiculously over-the-top and lavish futuristic world and is doing so on a budget of, what was it, like $40 million. Um, can't, yeah, can't you know, it, it just doesn't have the resources to actually do the 
big, ridiculous world. So it chooses to zoom in on it. And again, that is fine for doing a day in the life. But yeah, I think you're right. I mean, it's I I do I really really like this film, but as a standalone film, and if you came to it, well, I was going to say if you came to it knowing nothing of dread, but Caroline, you came to it knowing nothing of dread. But it it does feel like it is more like a pilot for a series than it is a self-contained and satisfying movie because it what it doesn't do really is get across you know a significant proportion of what there is about judge dread and judge dread's world it's it's zoomed in on a on a very narrow part of it you know is that how it felt to you caroline yeah well it was interesting to me in reading the wikipedia page this morning that that it does seem like its origin the comic origin and maybe the comics still are like is so much satirical and ironic and i don't think you get any of that from this film i think this is incredibly an incredibly straightforward film and i mean it's basically just die hard Mm in a little bit of the future um but i agree with seb's point too that it's a i don't necessarily think that something needs to maintain even the spirit of its source material if it if it can just be an interesting product on its own um but i i wish even if the film wanted to remove satire as a storytelling device i wish it had delved more deeply into a straightforward critique of its own world which at times feels like it's there as i think one of you guys mentioned like to me the part of the film that stands out the most or that i remember most strongly or had the most visual visceral reaction to is that when the woman um lets dread and cassandra into her house briefly Mm. and says she won't rat them out because she's worried about her husband out there and just as they go to leave Cassandra realizes that the husband is the man that she um, executed mm. earlier. Like that's like such a gut punch of a moment yeah. that feels like a very powerful critique of this world in which like dread has such a black and white view of the world. And it feels like this movie is setting up an arc and it kind of answers it in which dread kind starts of. out thinking the world is black and white and he wants to function in that. And you would think by the end, he would realize that the world is shades of gray. And to some extent he does like, he's sort of like, okay, I'll I'll let her pass, even though technically she didn't pass. But in other ways, it mostly just feels like this film is super pro dread. And it's like, yeah, (laughs) if you have good cops, it doesn't matter if they have endless power. And that's the part that I wish it had more strongly critiqued. And it's sort of like, if I go ahead. I mean, so I was, I I just wanted to respond to the dread seeing the world in shades of gray thing, because I, I, fundamentally don't think he does because of the decision he makes with Marmar at the end because he basically on a gamble decides that by in in his worldview black and white she's guilty she is he's judge jury and executioner he's gonna kill her now he does that and he takes the gamble that throwing her from the rooftop will stop the terrible lot from exploding but he could be wrong and he'd rather kill her and be wrong and then then arrest her take her in for questioning or whatever <laughs> you know then 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 make that decision at the end because that's his worldview she's she needs to be executed and he's going to do that there i think the stuff with letting her pass i think she i think because she kind of does save the day on a couple of occasions that she does pass and because he does she does do the stuff that he asks her to do in terms of executing that guy and in terms of uh, shooting the corrupt judge who was, who was shot dread, that she kind of is capable of has. I think where the film is trying to get the satire in is where it shows her viewing the world in Shades of Grey and mm-hmm. that she, she... It's not that she doesn't pass, it's that she 
she doesn't care whether she's passed. She hands her badge to Dread and walks away because she's had enough. Because she's had a, she's experienced an evening of, of looking at a world in black and white and going, "Well, no, that I, that's, I, I can't, I can't look at the world like that." And that presumably is why she hadn't passed the tests with the with the marks that she needed before she gets handed over to Dread. I think I think there's a. I mean, in terms of dread and and his sort of view of the world i mean i think there is i think if you're doing judge dread there's a pretty fundamental thing that you have to stick to which is that i mean bar these little shifts and these little moments of humanity like that bit at the end you know he is a a a, a rock solid rock in the middle of things you know he he won't change in his view you have to be and for the character to work you have to kind of rely on that and you have to know what he's going to do it's like you know the film introduces the idea that in this system there can totally be corrupt judges but dread is completely incorruptible um and it's like i think i think also as well i mean i I talked before about the kind of satire and even kind of lampooning elements dread himself as a character is not generally like the butt of the joke or kind of has the piss taken out of him? It the world and the system in which he operates is there to be critiqued, but with Dread himself, it's like on on the assumption that this is the world that he lives in and this is these are the rules that he lives by. It, those rules to him are completely incontrovertible, and you know, apart from times when that power has been corrupted. Um, you know, like for example, if you, if you have a corrupt chief judge who's taken over and declared himself ruler again, spoilers for the uh, recommendation section later. Um, you know, Ju- Judge Dredd's primary purpose is to completely uphold the laws that have been laid down and to work within those laws and not to break them himself. Um, but it doesn't mean that he's kind of you know lacking in sympathy. I mean, he he tries to hide it as much as possible. It's like you get that little moment where. Um, he stuns the two kids yeah. who come yeah. at him with guns rather than killing them. And it's like having seen how he's acted throughout the rest of the film, there's actually no reason for him to do that. And to his own code, he would probably be justified in killing them there. Although I think if you're, you know, uh, any viewer of the film, if he did shoot them at that point, you, you wouldn't be on his side for the rest of the film. But do you um, not think that that would be a more interesting way to go to just to show him? being that 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 for me would would add that bit of satire and would like it would remove any kind of moral gray area in terms of the audience in knowing whether you should root for him or not because i kind of feel like by the end of the movie that i should be rooting for judge anderson but not for judge dread that i that i i want to see that he is essentially the kind of like the mascot of a fascistic regime ruling over a dystopia uh, and yes, they are maintaining law, but like, are they maintaining laws like on on behalf of a of a good government or not? And so, I feel like by not having a view of the wider world and by not completely presenting wor- dread as someone out- whose actions aren't, it's worth know. pointing out actually though that the the in in the world, and again, maybe this is you know sort of known from the comics a little bit more, but I mean. <sighs> Fascistic is maybe the wrong word. Authoritarian is definitely the right word, but the judge system is, and, and you know the kind of the, the the way that the judges work and and the government for which they operate is not necessarily shown to like. It's not V for Vendetta, you know. It's mm. not an oppressive police state in that sense, um, you know. 
people do live their lives and it's it, it's more this kind of do you know i think it, it's it's this kind of almost overgrown ridiculous society and it's like humanity has grown and and to such a ludicrous degree and and become so ridiculous in some of the things that it does that uh, the police have had to become so hardline just to actually keep any semblance of control um now like right rightly or wrongly as i say like the that is the system in which dread operates and i think i do kind of feel that dread stories can only really work if you buy in to the idea that within the world and system in which he exists he's doing the right thing to our eyes it doesn't necessarily always look like the right thing but i i feel that a dread story doesn't really work if you think oh he could be the baddie here you know yeah and i think that so i think ultimately my thought like if i were to if i were able to entirely shut off any context for the real world for my life for anything and if i just watched this movie completely as a movie i think it's really enjoyable and dread's actually a really interesting character because i think he is like you're saying Seb, he is super fair and is a pretty good guy like there's that part where where judge anderson is like i'm 99 percent sure that wood harris's character k did it mm. and he says we can't assassinate him on 99 percent. yeah and... like the, the whole a lot of the bad a lot of the the, the plot happens because dread won't just shoot someone yeah. who they're pretty certain is guilty he has to be a hundred percent certain if they just shot him at that point at the start of the film there's no rest of the plot but he won't do that and so you get the plot yeah so like within the context of this movie in isolation i think he's a really interesting nuanced compelling protagonist the problem is that movies don't exist in a vacuum like ultimately this movie does (laughs) exist in the real world and i don't really feel comfortable with any movie that's arguing that this authoritarian system of government is fair as long as you have good people doing it and and really a movie where we're asked to sympathize with that system or sympathize with these people and that's where you start to get uncomfortable because I think a lot of people I think a lot of people could watch this movie and get the nuance. I think more people are going to watch this movie and think like, "Yeah, that was cool," and not think about it. Like you're you're sort of putting out a dangerous mass message that's just sort of like, "Yeah, trust the police to kill whoever they want because that's more efficient and better." And again, I wonder if this does speak to like British or American perspective or anything cuz cuz I think this is like this movie Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. And I think I said this earlier, but this movie is ultimately like not that much of a fiction compared to what really happens in the United States, especially Mm -hmm. like, I mean, every single day there's stories of cops killing innocent people and then not getting in trouble for it. And, and in this movie, it's sort of saying like, when that happens, it's because the cop is justified. But in the real world, a lot of the time the cop isn't justified and then doesn't get punished for it. And so it's such a tricky, messy Mm thing to put out there and this doesn't feel like it is adding social value even if in isolation i can see why it's a compelling story yeah it's certainly a different it is certainly a different case in the uk i mean particularly at at the time we're recording this you know you think think that's the last couple of weeks and like the the main discussion around the police in this country about is is kind of like how there aren't enough of them and how the cuts in policing Mm -hmm. has been a negative thing and around the terror attacks that have happened what a fantastic job the police that we do have have done uh, whereas I can't remember the last positive story that I heard coming out from America about mm. policing. So, I mean, it similarly, is a you know, it's like world. when we you know when the yeah, the, you know, this was created um, in Britain in the late seventies, um, and it, as I say, it's 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 partly a response to a certain genre of American films, and it's kind of ext- it's kind of merging that with British sci-fi and and action adventure sensibilities and also and, that would be that would be Seb, a time as well. Seb, that would be a time as well where police in our country were less trusted i think when yeah. you think that's in the minor strikes and the imagery around uh law enforcement in the uk at that time yeah but but also you know it's it's also it's also a time when you know the idea of of british police carrying guns would be unthinkable now yeah. yes as, as we speak now in 2017 and you walk through train stations and and they've got them and it looks weird to us it's like you know it's a slightly mm. different story but you know the point is it's like it, it it's british people telling stories in these comics um aimed at kids lest we forget by the way um you know re- really when you, when it comes down to it early 2000 AD was really a comic for kids even if the people writing it didn't didn't treat them in that way um it's 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 extrapolating things to a ridiculous degree and it's you, you can present these kind of futuristic cops going around with guns because yeah you wouldn't see that on the streets in britain you might if you were in northern ireland but that's about it you know um so yeah we we have that distance on it and actually yeah maybe nowadays you know world's gotten smaller we see more that goes on in america and it, it comes and touches us over here as well um, we don't ha- quite have that distance from it, and it is a trickier thing to to reconcile and and to really kind of throw yourself wholeheartedly into. At the time that these original comics were being published, it's just ridiculous. It's practically high fantasy, you know. It's mm. just it's just yeah. It's so far removed from anything. Um, and one of the things that you know that this film I think does in a positive sense from a filmmaking point of view is to take. The concept of dread and the costume and the setup and everything and, and do that that grounded realistic thing but actually yeah the more realistic you make dread um 
the more problematic it becomes. The clo- you know, and even this doesn't feel anywhere like as far in the future as the comics do. You know, the technology and the look of it and stuff. This feels like fifty years in the future rather yeah. than hundreds of years in the future. And yeah, it's you know that that does make it more uncomfortable because, as you say, you're comparing it to real things that actually happen to real people, not to these crazy people in the future with wacky names. Yeah, I think I think to me as well, and I mean, it would be interesting to go back and read some interviews with Alex Garland about this to see how he perceives Dredd in this movie, whether he does perceive him to be a villain or whether he does perceive him to have kind of like, uh, you know, like you talk about letting the kids live or whatever, because you, I, I, I was trying to compare this film in my head to something like John Wick, where that guy is... Uh, actively a criminal like he's a former hitman he went around and killed people for money but i'm rooting for him in that movie and i think the reason i'm rooting for him and why i can kind of like cheer on these disgusting graphic headshots that we get in that film is because john wick is operating in this world of criminals and hitmen like that all of the people they're all part of that same kind of underbelly that he's a part of and so he goes in and is kind of taking out guys who were worse than him and it kind of acknowledges that, that that he is a bit of a bad guy as well. I watch Dread and I see a, a tower block full of people of which Mama is unquestionably bad. But even she has this kind of origin story of like having a really tough background that kind of forced her into a corner. And it was at that point that she kind of like caged animal managed to like emerge from that corner and and take on some some power. But everyone else in the in the tower block is kind of like in her thrall. They're all working for her. They're all pawns, or or like it, you know, some of the residents are just people who literally just live there and want a want a, a better way of life, or people who are kind of sucked up into this, into being a product of the system and the world that they live in. And there are so many people in that block that I do wonder. Like, there are some people who are obviously villains, but there are some people who you kind of think they're a victim of circumstance. And I never know whether i should be cheering on dread like when he's killing people again people like the corrupt cops or like the the, the like one of the early generals of mama who takes dread on yes but it doesn't feel like something that i can always be kind of punching the air about in in the way that i can in say die hard or john wick or even the raid which was a film that came out at a very similar time to this <laughs> with very similar very similar plot premise of guy needs to work his way to the top of the tower with his gun to have a final fight (laughs) i don't think the film ever really wants us to see dread as a villain i think it's pretty much on dread's side i think that they go out of their way to show him being the system people might be corrupt within the system like the other judges that are super corrupt but he is like the last good man left in the system but on the other hand i do think the film's most interesting moments are the one where judge anderson cassandra whatever you want to call her where she adds nuance like the moment where she lets Domhnall Gleeson go because she realizes that he is as much of a victim as he is a criminal and I wish that there were more of those moments but I don't think it goes so far as to question Dredd himself it more maybe like questions the system but I think we're always supposed to see him as a pretty clear-cut hero I mean but I I think if the film has a a hero in terms of the narrative it's it is Anderson rather Mm -hmm. than Dredd yeah. Um, you know, as you say, you know, particularly because you know she is the one who actually has those moments that you can actually think of as heroic moments. And I have to say, in terms of the actual screenplay and the so the kind of the opening 
voiceover, the opening chase sequence, the introduction of Anderson, I think the film does a really good job of getting across all these elements of this world. Like, this is vaguely what this city is. This is what the judge system is. This is what happens when Judge Dredd is in action. And, oh, hey, let's add another sci-fi conceit on top of this, which is that Judge Anderson has superpowers. And... I think by the time they're in the tower block, and and also all the stuff with slow mo as well, which is just kind of um, uh, shown to you visually. But like by the time you're in the tower, I think that even if you don't understand all of the nuances of this world, I think considering the budget, the facts that you kind of kind of get the gist of everything, and that it all seems believable as a part of this world that they've established mm. in the first ten minutes. I think that's that's some really great efficient I mean, storytelling. I, I yeah, I, I think economical is the best word to describe this film, mm-hmm. and, I, and I mean it in lots of different ways yeah. in terms of how it uses a small budget. And yeah, storytelling wise, it is it is very economical. You know, given that it's got this this big world to try and set up and draw from, it just gives you the key points you need to know for this particular story to work. You don't need to know. Um, you know whether the the woman who assigns Anderson to to Dread is um, the chief judge or or whatever. You know, in terms of you know the, the comics would have this setup of of the various levels of the judges. You don't need to know that. You just need to know she's she's Dread's boss essentially. You don't need to know like in the comics um, Anderson. Anderson is the first Psy character that's introduced, but she's introduced as Anderson from Psy Division. Like she, she, it, there are some ways in which she's quite different in the comics when she first comes into it. She's she is experienced, you know. She's and she's like the most respected Psy um, judge. But there's a whole division of Psy judges. Whereas here, you don't know whether there are lots of other people like her or not, or if she's one of the first. I mean, it's kind of implied that that it's a growing thing and that she is one of the first, and that there isn't a Psy Division as such. But all you really need to know is she's psychic, and that's what what matters for this story. Um, and you know, the, especially given how little actual dialogue, especially Dread, but even you know Dread and Anderson generally have, um, you know, their characters have got across really well. I absolutely love. I mean, it is probably my favourite thing about the film: the dynamic between them throughout the film. Yeah, it's and so like great. Every little exchange of dialogue that they have. And the way that it that it shifts as it goes along is brilliant, and it's you know just those little moments between the action where it stops and you just get a little moment with them talking about what they're going to do next. And as you know, again in the comics there is a slightly wisecracky relationship between Anderson and Dread, although in in quite a one way fashion because Dread doesn't do wisecracks, but Anderson kind of quite likes winding him up. Um, but you do get those those little bits of wisecracks, and I love the the twin lines. The the line early on, "Are you ready, rookie? You don't look ready." And then towards the end, "Are you ready, rookie? You look ready." Um, you know, just the, yeah, those, those two points at either side of the film, I love. But all of the little things where they're having those little moments, I just think are, are great and really well done. I know I I love that it's you have that kind of relationship between those two characters without there being any worry of any kind of sexual tension or anything like that. It's like, that is just, there is no romantic element to this film whatsoever. I'm not saying that romantic elements are a bad thing, but this film doesn't need them and and it steers clear of it really well. Yeah, that was another thing that really drew me to this film was I just think it treats its female characters so well and that it just treats Mm. them like people which is so rare. I think this, and actually The Hunger Games is another series that does that really well. It's just like, Mm. yes, women are in this world and they're going to be treated like people. 
think we can acknowledge gendered things. It's not like it's pretending mm. that gender doesn't matter, like particularly in like the way that that Anderson has to deal with like rape threats in a way that Dread doesn't. But on the but it never like it never feels gratuitous with that. And also no. just I I realize it's so rare when you have a female villain in a comic book property or an action property. They're usually either sexy, they're like sexualized violence, or they're stoic like somebody like Lady mm. Deathstrike in X-Men 2, or they're really gimmicky, yeah. like in um, Wonder Woman, where you sort of have the like cackling, like mad scientist yeah. woman. Yeah. But this is just like, Mama is just like a person. Like she's just an evil person. She's, she's and she brutal. doesn't need to have like a gimmick or a sexy thing. She's yeah. just like treated like a person. And I think Anderson is the same way. And like, that is so refreshing that they're just, that it doesn't need to be like, you're a girl. You can't do that. Oh, damn, she did it. Which is so often that like patronizing thing that that these movies can do. And here it's just like the point blank. Like we're just going to accept that women can do this, and we don't need to talk about it one I, way or the I, other. I really like that. There's that bit where um, she where she's an, it's relatively late on, but where she's annoyed at, at Kay for you know having not having got himself caught and having not been killed, and she. Just, punches him in the face and it's mm-hmm. just you know it's, it's just a moment of because you do have this thing of you know if she's the female kind of boss villain oh well it, you know in a lot of films it would be well she's in charge but obviously you know it's because she has people carrying out her threats for yeah. her and that kind of thing but no with mama it's just if you piss her off she will beat the shit out of you um, yeah i'm thinking there's only really two moments in the film where either of those characters genders are like important because otherwise both of the characters could be men uh, the first is that little touch of Mama's backstory, but mm-hmm. again, you could kind of you, that could that could easily not be there, or it could be tweaked slightly, and then otherwise her character could be a male character. Um, and the uh, with Judge Anderson, it's really just that um, that scene with um, Wood Harris uh, where she gets inside his mind and mm. all the, and and. Again, it's not really that the movie treats her any differently for being a woman there. You see a man think that he can get one over mm. on her because she is a woman there. And you see basically that ultimately it doesn't matter because she's because she's got these psychic powers and because she kind of knows what to expect from someone like him, that it's something that she can very, very easily overcome and the scene ends with him pissing his pants. Um, yeah. <laughs> Which is kind of great. Um, we should we should talk about the two performances. By the way, I'm now going to switch tack because I know I said at the start that I like vague, I I do like this movie. I probably just didn't like it as much as all of the people who were kind of raving about it at the time. But I do I do still really like this movie, and I feel that now we've got over the my my quibbles about the film <laughs> that I can begin to talk a lot more about the stuff that I do like and agree with you guys. Um, so the two lead performances, I mean. Carl Urban, I wouldn't have like immediately thought he would make a great Judge Dredd, but he makes a great Judge Dredd, and I think Olivia Thirlby is like crucial to this mm-hmm. film working. And it's insane to me that her career post Juno has been as quiet as it is to the point that this is like this is her next most notable role after that. And there aren't many others that that I can think of even films that I've i've got to see or films that i remember like i've seen a couple of films that she's in i can't remember really being a part of them which is which is crazy mm. to me but yeah let's talk about how to those let's talk about how great those two are they're both so great and that was actually so i did kind of come to to dread 
randomly but but the main reason was i went to a chicago comic-con where they sort of have you know all the people come and do signings and talks and whatever and i actually saw carl urban there and during his panel he talked a little bit about dread which is like what put it in my mind but i just have the most lovely impression of carl urban as a human (laughs) being from that comic-con because you can kind of tell the people aka david boreanaz that like don't really want to be there and are clearly just doing this for a paycheck and like get annoyed that audiences are asking them you know like well in angel episode two like why did this happen (laughs) but carl urban you could just tell he loved being there he loved answering people's Mm. questions he was so generous i saw him at one point just literally walking the con floor like going to each booth and looking at like the comics and the toys that people had not like oh i'm gonna sequester myself away like he just seemed so genuinely engaged and thankful for sort of the comic book slash movie fandom. And that just made me think so kindly of him as a person. Um, So just to add that in there as well, I also think he's very great in this film performance wise, but the combination of that just like, I just have like a big heart around Carl Urban in my mind. Before we go over to Seb, um, I just wanted to share with you, Caroline, how how do you find him? Uh, you mentioned about all of the other sci-fi fantasy yeah. properties he's been in. We've got him coming up in a Marvel movie later this year. Um, obviously, a Star Trek, which I imagine you'll be able to uh, uh, comment um, on. And uh, also Lord of the Rings. And I mean, he was in, I was saying, the TV show Almost Human on, when yeah. that came out. Reminded me of basically, oh, this is like someone seen Dread and gone, what if we water that down and put it on TV? Um, do you do you like him in that other stuff? Do you, are you as fond of him in those other roles as you are of him here? Yeah, I like him in everything. And I think he's more of a chameleon than you would expect. Like, I actually don't. Yes. I mean, obviously, I know he's in all of those things. But I do not associate his role in Lord of the Rings with, like, Bones and Star Trek at all. But I don't think he's necessarily an actor that you would immediately look at and be like, wow, that guy's a real, real chameleon of an actor. He seems like an everyman. But I think he's actually he's actually had a far more diverse career than than you might think and yeah i think he's like consistently great like maybe he's not gonna ever make the ranks of my top tier actors but but really consistently good in everything he does yeah and this is why i think that he would be more than up for returning to this role even on tv um i think he's i think he's just about the level of famous that he could if it's a high budget tv show he could come in and do it um and i would love him to do that but seb Seb, tell us all about Carl Urban. Are you as much of a fan as Caroline and I? I, I, I do really like him. I mean, I mean I'm, I'm probably slightly biased because I've met him. I, I, I interviewed him for this film, for Den of Geek. Oh, awesome. Um, and I was a little bit intimidated because uh, I think by that point he probably was the most famous person I'd, I'd sat in a room and interviewed. And he was massively jet-lagged. And like to begin with, um, his answers were really short. And I remember being worried about two or three minutes in that I was going to have run out of questions because he was a little bit... Uh, withdrawn but he did he opened up as it went on and as I say he, he was knackered and he wasn't the most kind of it definitely wasn't the most lively interview I've ever done but he's clearly a really nice guy he's also clearly a massive fan of this and of yeah. this character like he really wanted to do this because he's a fan he read them growing up he, he I think he told me in the interview that he'd sort of um he picked because I was I was surprised at how he would have picked up the comics um growing up where he did is he, is he New Zealand or Australian? Is he, is he, I think he's, he's New Zealand, he's yeah. 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 So I was like, you know, how, how would you have got the Dread comics? And it was like the dairy down the road from him had some of the, the quality comics, <laughs> which were these US reprints that they did in the 90s. Uh, and a friend of his got him into them. So, you know, he's he's been reading Dread stuff for years and years. Um, what I like about him is, I mean, I, I almost, I've, because probably because he doesn't take the helmet off, it's, it's kind of hard to see him as 
Carl Urban in this, although there there are moments where I think his accent slips through a little bit. Um, what I really like in this is that he... The thing about Judge Dredd is that, you know, Judge Dredd is quite famous for his chin because, you know, he is this character who wears this helmet. You only ever see his nose and his mouth and his chin. And he's, he's famous for being drawn with this quite strongly defined chin. And we all know that that's basically the reason why Sylvester Stallone got cast as him in, yeah. in the 95 film. Carl Urban doesn't have the Judge Dredd chin. If you just look at a picture nope. of normal Carl Urban normally, he doesn't have Dredd's chin at all. In this film, he does because he spends the whole film pulling off the, the he turns down his lips yes. so firmly he gets that and if you look at dread as drawn particularly as drawn by an artist called carlos esquero who didn't draw the original stories but did originally design him and then went on to draw him later on and esquero draws people scowling like nobody else in the business and the dread scowl carl urban has absolutely got that when he turns down those lips and does that snarl it's like he all of a sudden he grows Judge Dredd's chin and it's fantastic. I um, I spent half of the film like with Carl Urban on Google Images up in front of me going how much <laughs> how much is he actually doing with the bottom half of his face here because yeah his lips are so downturned in a way that's completely unnatural but doesn't look unnatural for the character in the helmet there. He's also mm. got I, I just the perfect amount of stubble and kind of like the perfect amount of like sweaty clamminess to that mm. face as well. I think my favourite my favorite part is just after he's been shot by Judge Lex and yeah. <laughs> and you see his kind of, because his lower, his lower his chin is kind of quivering a little bit as well and it's sweaty and it's clammy and he's got that stubble but he's still got the grimace and he's still delivering it, these kind of like Arnie-esque early 90s zingers. Um, mm. I, I, I just yeah, I just think he looks incredible uh, and you're right I, I, about that that costume being immediately iconic, but Carl mm. Urban, I I think th- this is better than casting someone who just has a prominent chin because yeah, yeah he, he, he works d- for it. <laughs> yeah, it's it's um, a fully it's a fully formed character that comes through on a third of his face. I, I just wanted to get in about Carl Urban as well, while it's not specifically relevant to this, but since we're talking about it now, you know I'm not the biggest Star Trek fan in the world. He is by a country mile my favourite thing about those those new Star Trek films. I, I love Ca- Caroline discussed in those films. <laughs> I think he's great too. Yeah, I like him. I think sometimes he gets accused of doing too much of a direct impression, but I think he's always consistently... not as much as Chris Pine does in Beyond. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But I think he's he's always consistently super enjoyable and really funny and that and again that speaks to like his skill as an actor that Judge Dredd is not a funny character like the one thing he gets that's closest to a quip is when he's like wait for her to shoot you when he when he's talking yeah, to the other was, judge yeah I like, um, that a lot. I like that a lot too but I like that he's so I really like characters that are super calm and competent I think sometimes that gets mistaken for being boring. But, like, Judge Mm. Dredd is basically a Vulcan. Like, he's just so calm. (laughs) And I actually find that a really interesting thing. And and even Anderson, who is a little bit more, like, human in her reactions, like, the whole point of being a judge is that you're just constantly calm and collected, even far more extreme than, like, Bruce Willis is in Die Hard, where he is sort of quippy and, like, dealing with his stress in these, like, funny ways or whatever. Like, I really am fascinated by how calm they are throughout the whole movie. I find that... I wouldn't want every action hero to be like that, but I find it really... That's one of the more compelling elements of this movie for me. Yeah, um, and and we we spoke about... I mean, you spoke about the the relationship that he has with Anderson. Um, 
do we do we want to talk a bit more about Olivia Philby? Like, what's what's gone wrong with her career? That like, because I think <laughs> she's so good here as like a humanizing element. Yeah. But also, like, it just it just feels like that they've got the perfect take on every single one of her scenes. That you that you understand that character so deeply and how she's feeling in all of these different moments. That she she has that she has that sense of being a, a rookie who's out of her depth, but also and, and also someone who's got like such uh such complex emotions running through her all the way through this film but is also capable of being just a, a straightforward action movie badass like I, I i i was watching this and going god why haven't i seen more olivia philby movies like the fact that this is four years after juno in the first place and that we're five mm. years post this now and she's been in like i don't know what like in darkness, no strings attached. I'm seeing that she's uh, she's been on on Goliath, the uh, Billy Bob Thornton Amazon series, and so maybe that's where I'm missing her from. Maybe I need to go to that to get my Olivia Thorpe fix. I just think it speaks to a lack of roles for women in Hollywood. Like I feel like there's so many of these women that that like give these amazing performances, and then people just don't know what to do with them. And I agree, she's so great. She's so humanizing. She's her physicality is really impressive. Like she she does come across as being so strong and like she's a pretty small person but you totally mm. buy her as this like physically intimidating really well-trained judge who is also overwhelmed on her first mission like she does she balances that really well i think um okay is there anything else that we particularly want to hit before we start moving on to the other sections anything that you guys um have thought that we haven't got to yet well i just want to say performance wise just like such credit to both Lena Headey and Wood Harris, who I wish this movie did more with. I think he's pretty underserved in a frustrating way. And when he does get stuff to do, he's really great. But specific credit to them, because I think it would have been so easy to for Wood Harris to make this character Avon Barksdale and for Lena Headey to make this character Cersei Lannister. And I yeah. wouldn't even have faulted them for it. Like, I think that there are archetypes there that are somewhat similar. And I think a lot of times people in big blockbuster movies, when they're playing similar characters, like and it makes sense they just give the same performance and like you can kind of forgive them for that but they like you can tell that they are both really dedicated trained actors because these characters feel nothing like those iconic characters that they've that they've played in other places when they really easily could and like such credit to both of them as actors for for just you know for not falling back on something that was easy and really and really like i mean i I know i'm just like defining what acting is but i feel like it's actually kind of rare to see that in practice and like a lot of credit to both of them yeah, and I think we should as well, um, especially with Lena Headey and Marma, this might be a, a good transition point to go into some of the visuals of the film because, mm. I, I mean, basically, they give her that scar, but I think the best part of her character design is the teeth. Like, the teeth mm-hmm. are just... They lend her this this scuzzy edge, which, again, immediately give you that kind of arm's length from Cersei Lannister, which, uh, Seb, I know as a, a non-Game of Thrones watcher, you don't need that. <laughs> but for the rest of the world, I think we did. <laughs> and I think there's there's lots of those, there's lots of ways that this film gets the visuals right. And we'll, we'll talk about the slow-mo in a minute and the and the way some of the action's filmed. But I think just like little little parts of the of the character designs like Lena Hiddy's teeth. Uh, I think like even Olivia Thorby's haircut, I think, is just like you're never gonna miss her in that in that environment. Um it's I I don't know, I, I just love all the I loved all of the little visual cues that worked so well for the characters. And I think because this is such a limited setting that it again it, it's 
it's it's ostensibly just a tower block, but they do enough little things here and there with the design to make it to to you know give you a sense of the scale of the place, to give you a sense of the geography of the place. Um, I I think yeah, all of that stuff is. Uh, it's just you can tell there's a lot of care and attention to detail that has gone into making this relatively low budget film look as good as it does yeah i totally agree really smart production design and costume design and this is a little bit of a tangent but the thing that actually keyed me off that this series was a british series was that it was set in this tower block because i don't think actually in america we don't have the association of poverty and height Mm -hmm. if that makes sense like i i think in reality there's probably a lot of high-rise buildings that have like low-income people for sure but like my mental association is that height equals like expense and wealth and it's very interesting to watch this movie and i mean i think the movie does a fine job in setting up what the what the world is but that that setup i think is actually more fantastical that's like the most fantastical element for an american audience than Mm -hmm. i think maybe it would be for a British it's, audience, it's, it's obviously a bit unfortunately topical yeah. uh, for us in the UK at the moment. But yeah, I mean, it's I mean, it, it does kind of drive home. Yeah, this you know this uh, the, the very much so. Yeah, the perception of tower blocks in this country. Obviously, we do have you know posh high rise apartments mm-hmm. in in certain cities. But yeah, absolutely here, it's a case of you know shove people as as high up as possible because that's a way to get well actually, it's not just that it's a way to get more people in but i'm not going to get into the complex you know discussions yeah. around tower blocks in the uk now but yeah i mean it's it's very much and and i think mega city one is very much a a, a british view of a heavily heavily populated american city there's an interesting thing with the design actually that i read because one of the things I, I was never quite as keen on with this is the the look of the city um, because with the way that it's got it's got the tower blocks, but they're spread out quite apart from each other, um, yeah. and I, I don't really like how it looks in the. I mean, no, I like how it looks in the wide shots, but it doesn't look like mega the Mega City One that I would recognise from the comics. It looks like something different. But I read that the reason why they did that was because they tried designing it with the buildings all really densely um, packed close to one another, like they are in the comics. And it actually made it look smaller. It, it didn't give a sense of this sprawling metropolis when you have all the tall buildings right on top of each other. And that's the reason why they spread them out, so that you could actually show them over a wider area. So, you know, it, it was a conscious decision. It wasn't just, oh, we're, we're doing something different, you know, because we've just done something quite bland looking. Um, I like that there are some in-jokes in the names of some of the towers as well, because in the Dread comics, um, the towers are all usually named after like british celebrities from the 60s and 70s um and um i can't remember all of the ones that they do in the film i did remember spotting i first spotted it in the trailer that one of them is called Sternhammer, which is the name of a character from strontium dog which is one of the other major 2000 ad series so right um, okay I, that's one of the few concessions that the film makes to the in jokiness of of the comics i think um but in, in general i mean again i sort of it's a shame that I actually kind of wish it didn't have the chase sequence at the start yeah, because same. I would prefer to imagine that it has futuristic vehicles and, and a futuristic looking city outside of the tower block. That scene just feels too ordinary and too present day. Um, I do like though the, you know, the, the, as I say, the, the redesign of the costume to make it work as something practical. There's a really nice subtle touch that 
um, you know, you look at the costumes from the comics and they're these kind of, you know, these black outfits and the kind of knee pads and gloves and elbow pads are, are green in the comics. And it's, you know, it's really striking, but you can tell it wouldn't work on film. And in a lot of shots and in a lot of like the publicity shots and stuff when they first put out the costume, it looks quite kind of monochrome. But there are bits in the film where the way that it's lit means that because it has got a kind of green tinge to it. And every so often there are bits where you're seeing, um, it's particularly in the bits where you've got the other judges coming in, you're seeing these judge characters running around in the dark and you just get a little flash. And again, as someone who's a fan of the characters, like in, in my mind, that's just, oh, wow, that's a judge costume that I'm seeing on screen, even though for a lot of it, it's just, oh, he's wearing this, you know, quite practical body armor type thing. It's just, it's a nice way to be suggestive of, yes, this, these are the comic book characters without having a ridiculously outlandish over the top costume like the Sylvester Stallone film did. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think probably the the final point that we should talk about in relation to this film um, is all of the slow-mo stuff, which um, seems to me like this This film was also a film that was released in 3D. Uh, my Blu-ray, uh, was there was no option between 3D and 2D. It came with both versions. Um, it was actually marketed as Dread 3D was, yeah. was the title in the marketing as well, which was weird. Yeah, it was, it, was a, it was a big deal at the time, and I think probably mostly to do with the slow-mo and the effects that they worked on there, because I think that the drug is a is a really great idea um for a drug um it's it's a great idea uh for the way that they choose to depict it in this film you know to kind of lay out some of the horrors that this drug is causing to lay out some of the graphic violence of this world um but then you know just in that introductory shot with mama and the water again caroline you know in relation to you saying about the way that the women are treated you know this is a scene where it's a female character in a bathtub and it's not remotely sexualized. It's like kind of looking at this slightly horrific image of this scarred woman with meth teeth sat in a sat in a bath, uh, like tripping on drugs. But the water is shimmering in front of her and everything is sparkling. And there's, you know, there's a beauty to the way that they've shot it in this ultra slow-mo, very high. I'm not sure what the whether it was done through frame rate or whether it was done through uh filming with just some really high definition cameras or whatever but the end effect i think is remarkable and it it does make the film look a little bit more expensive than it probably was and i'm almost positive that i heard an interview with alex garland in which he said that that scene in particular the bathtub scene was something that like a second ad just sort of shot randomly because they were like sitting around doing nothing and like oh here's a bathtub why don't you get in it and like toss some water around and we'll just get that shot. And he was saying that speaking to the like lack of auteur thing, that that becomes one of the most iconic shots in the film and was not something, I don't even think he was saying he did it. I think he was literally saying like, oh yeah, someone just randomly thought to do that. And now it's, so it's interesting how films come together. But yeah, there's a lot in this film that if someone told me they thought it was too gimmicky, I like couldn't argue with them. Like if someone was like, I think, Carl Urban's performance as Judge Dredd is too, like, gimmicky and cheesy. Or I think the slow-mo is too gimmicky and cheesy. I'd be like, yeah, I totally see where you're coming from. But for me, it, like, sticks, it, like, just works for me. Like, there's, I have no, like, intellectual defense of it. And in some ways, it does feel like, yeah, this is kind of just what movies do when they want to be cool and artistic. But, like, it's cool and artistic, and I'm into it, and it works for me. I think, I mean, it, 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 it gives the film a really distinctive edge. It's like, if you if you didn't know about 
the characters or you didn't know what Judge Dredd was or that it was a comic, you'd go, oh, this was that film that was like The Raid, but it had all those slow-mo sequences. Um, and slow-mo sequences in a good way, not in a... <laughs> it's not speed ramping, is it? It's definitely not speed ramping. Mm. It doesn't feel... Like, if it's it's there for... It serves a plot effect and it serves a really interesting visual effect. So I think it's just Zack Snyder is slowing that stuff down to go, oh, look how gruesome and cool this is. I do think, it, it, while I've said all the stuff that I said about the satire early in this, I do think that when we are watching the slow-mo in regards to violence in this mm. film, I think it is to serve a, oh, God, how horrific is that effect? And I don't mm. think when Lena Hades' head crushes into the ground in slow motion in this film it is to go oh yeah look at this horrible thing that's happened to this bad character i think there is a moment in that fall that you kind of see her experiencing almost this acceptance and euphoria and that the the fall is to remind you that like yeah that's a pretty that like however much you you know it's the character that's pretty nasty it's a there's a really uh, clever little moment where actually where it does a lot of the fall in slow motion and then just before it goes back to slow motion at the ground it shows her at full speed mm. and it's a, it's it kind of snaps you out because it goes oh yeah this is really horrific she's plummeting two hundred stories at a very fast speed um, and yeah as as you say I mean it's you know it's it, it's gruesome but it's um, yeah it, it's not it's not glory glorying in the fact that it's gruesome it's actually going. Yeah, this is. You should be reminded that this is pretty horrible. Um, yeah, and yeah, the same when you you know when you've got bullets ripping through flesh and stuff. Um, and I'm you know I'm I'm quite a squeamish person when it comes to violence a lot of the time, and I it it feels strange to me watching something like this. And actually, it's that it's that it manages to almost get this kind of beauty out of some of this violence. You know, when, you, when you've got this brightly coloured slow motion shot of a bullet passing through someone's cheek. Um, I think I think they are very intentionally going. Look, we can make this beautiful. We can make this horrendous <laughs> violence beautiful. But you shouldn't forget that it's horrendous. It's it's kind of. Um, I'd liken it to another film that we're going to be covering at some point fairly soon, which is Sin City. Um, the way that Sin City treats you know the violence and the splashing of blood in in the black and white way that it does it. You know. Whereas um, I'm listening to you say that, Seb, and thinking we should get Seb watching some Brian Fuller TV shows. <laughs> some uh, Hannibal and um, American Gods in your life. I, well, I've I've watched some of American Gods. I have been uh, a bit disappointed with the pacing of it, shall we say? <laughs> As a big fan of the book, uh, I I think it suffers whenever Ian McShane's not on screen. But yeah, <laughs> that, that's a conversation for another time. Yeah. Um, Caroline, any closing thoughts before we move off off of Dread and onto our final couple of sections? Um, I guess. It's not a perfect movie. It's in some ways it's shallow, in some ways it's problematic, but gosh darn it, I like it and I think it's worth a look and at least it's worth I mean, I think we got a really interesting discussion out of it, you know, kind of about mm. violence and stuff like and maybe the movie isn't engaging with that discussion, but I think it'd be an interesting one. You sit down, maybe not with your family <laughs> with, but maybe with your friends. <laughs> Let it spark a conversation about police violence and the police state. And also be entertained by some talented actors. Yeah, and I, and I I would have liked to have gone into a couple of the topics there more in depth. I think particularly 
Um, what you were saying about the tower blocks, I think there's a lot to talk about there. I don't think now's the right time to do that, um, unfortunately. But Seb and I actually had a discussion about whether we should change out the film this week, and we yeah. thought we'd press ahead. We thought we'd press ahead, but obviously it is a. Uh, I mean, it's happening more and more that things from the news are uh, <laughs> impacting, like the discussion of these comic book movies. Like, there's Nazis and terrorism and police violence and. Yeah, horrible social inequality out there in the world, and it's. I, I think, honestly, if we if we were moving the episodes around, we'd be doing it almost every other week at this point. Um, but yeah, so I think I think it is a really interesting film, and from my perspective, I almost think that all the criticisms that I had of it were almost things that like it's not that I felt the film didn't address them. It's almost like I felt that because the story was so narrow in its focus that it was almost waiting to address them at a later time. And obviously that's something that's never going to happen in terms of this universe. But you never know, maybe the the Dread, the Mega City 1 TV show um, can move forward and do some of that stuff as well, whilst whilst hopefully recreating some of the elements that made this film so compelling. Yeah, I mean, I would, if, if that show does go ahead, I, I'd like to see it treat this movie as, as the pilot that I talked about yeah. earlier in terms of... Um, doing a load of individual stories like this and, and doing the, the small in scale stuff and letting the world building kind of, you know, go on in the background. Um, I think, I think this film sets up a lot as what well, we talked about it being economical, um, that, that a TV show could use a shorthand and run with, without having to spend a long time setting up its world before it gets to telling the stories. And you could get the cast back. I'm sure you could get yeah. the cast back. Yeah, maybe not Lee well, Hetty, but well, I guess she's gone anyway. So yes. unless you need some mama flashbacks, <laughs> we're good to go. But it's like, yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, the, one one of the main things that comes out of this film is you really want to see what happens to Judge Anderson next. You know what's going to happen to Judge Dredd next. You don't you don't necessarily need to see that, but you want to see where Judge Anderson's career goes from here. Yeah. Oh yeah. Absolutely. Well, I do anyway. <laughs> let's let's make her the lead of the TV series. How about that? Oh, that'd be great. <laughs> yes. Um, okay, but that's it for our discussion of Dread. Um, we'll move on now to the comic book recommendations section. Um, and Seb, this is just you this week. So, what Dread yeah. comics do you have for me to read? So, you well, I mentioned the you, well, you brought up the Dark Judges earlier, and it really is the the natural next place to go because they you know it's one of the most famous stories, and it's probably what they would have looked to do um, with the next film. Um, just what I'm recommending you here are going to be so Judge Dread stories from 2000 AD. Um, if you're not aware of this, 2000 AD stories tend to take place in eight-page long seg- segments. So you'll either get, a, like with uh, monthly comics, you'll either get a longer story taking place um, over multiple issues, because an issue of 2000 AD would contain multiple eight-page stories in it, um, or you might get a self-contained short one, and they might even be shorter than eight pages sometimes. So these stories are very, very short in comparison to American superhero comics. Um, so it's worth bearing that in mind when you read them and that's why I'm giving you a few different ones because you'll get through them quite quickly so to start with if you want to read about Judge Death and the Dark Judges um, the first story is just called Judge Death uh, and it originally appeared in Progs 149 through to 151 of 2000 AD so it's in 1980 so it's a very short story but it's also the very first appearance of Anderson and that's the other reason why I think it's a good one to recommend for this is is that it introduces Judge Anderson um, then you've got Judge Death Lives, which is essentially the sequel from 1981, from Progs 224 to 228. Um, and that is that brings back Judge Death, it brings back Judge Anderson, and it introduces the other three Dark Judges. It's a little bit longer, and it contains a moment, I, I alluded to it earlier, that I genuinely think is 
pretty much the greatest single panel in comic book history. Uh, you'll know it when you get to it. Um, so all those those two stories together are generally called the Dark Judges Saga, and they're, they're collected in, in a trade as that as well. But you'll find them both in volumes of the Judge Dread Complete Case Files. I don't have the exact numbers to hand of which ones they appear in, but I know I've told you which progs they appear in, which issues. Mm. So you can you can look up the case files and see if those issues are contained. Um, the other one I thought it'd be good for you to read one of the longer form Judge Dread stories. So um, the two big early examples of the Cursed Earth Saga, but I think that's a little bit much to get into. So so don't do Cursed Earth Saga just yet. We might come back to that with the Stallone movie. Um, instead, do the Day the Law Died. Uh, which was in 20 chapters from uh, issues 89 to 108 of 2000 AD. So that's um, from ni- uh, November 1978 to April 1979. Uh, it's also known as the Judge Cal story. Um, judge Cal is um, uh, basically becomes the chief judge and is very corrupt. And he's called Judge Cal because he basically turns into Caligula. Um, but panels from this story were were brought up around about the time of the American election and and the similarities between some of Cal's personality and actions and a certain president had been noted so it's right. you never would have thought that judge Cal would become a topical story but it kind of is now um so it it's basically it's a story of what happens to dread when the system that he puts all of his faith in becomes broken from the top down what does he do then basically uh, it's a great story, um, and as I say, it's, it gives you a chance to read one of these longer stories that happens in these eight-page chunks, but is twenty chapters, so it's like you know, hundred and sixty pages of comics. So, um, yeah, there you go. Excellent. Okay, lots of lots of Judge Dread to read then, um, and we'll move on to our final section now, which is the pitch. Um, and this week, um, I thought I could tie it into Judge Dredd, but uh, Carolina wasn't, uh, like, I thought, like, if I was like, which Judge Dredd comic, sh- or which uh, 2008 AD character should they adapt next? Uh, might not be playing to your strengths. It's true. Uh, so I, I decided to instead lean into something that was playing to your strengths. And I thought, with this movie starring Carl Urban, it got me thinking that a lot of Star Trek actors have actually gone on to star in comic book or superhero movies so i was thinking just particularly of the kind of new reboot generation we've also got chris pine in wonder woman we've got zoe saldana in guardians of the galaxy i even thought like we got um uh professor x uh with uh, patrick stewart from next generation um so what i thought is which star trek actor would you like to cast in a superhero movie and who would they play so you can you can go from any generation of trek and if you if you want to cheat a little bit and say i don't know like william shatner in his prime should have played this character um you're you're entirely within your rights to do that um, but Caroline, we'll come to you first. Who from Star Trek would you like to cast in a superhero or comic book movie? Well, I'm actually going to uh, piggyback on your pitch from the Wonder Woman episode where you guys suggested that She-Hulk should get her own movie series, which I mm-hmm. agree with. And I think that she should be played by the one and only Jerry Ryan, who you may know as oh, Seven of yes. Nine from Voyager, who is often written off as being a character who was introduced solely for sex appeal, which to be fair, I think that was a large part of how she was introduced. But Jerry Ryan through her like incredible acting skills took what could have just been this like sexy, nothing of a character and made her, I would say one of the most compelling characters in the Star Trek franchise. I would list Jerry Ryan as probably one of the top five actors in the, in all of Trek series. And I don't think she gets anywhere near the respect she deserves. And like, 
Olivia Thirlby. She like Hollywood kind of didn't know what to do with her after that. And I think it is time for the Jerry Ryan Renaissance, the Ryan Renaissance. And let's put her as <laughs> She-Hulk. She can just be a cool warrior slash strong lady. Um, you can get maybe even make it a TV show so you really get like lots of levels from her because she can really do it all. So that is my pitch for you. Excellent. I like that. In the news this week as well, Rachel Talalay has been talking about how she wants to direct a uh, She-Hulk movie in the MCU. Yes. So that that would be absolutely perfect. And Seb, not only you've got, that, you've but, got your but, work out. Well, actually, if Caroline was to say that Rachel Talalay um, should also be the director of this hypothetical film, I, I would concede the defeat now. <laughs> because reading what Rachel Talalay said about why she likes the character of She-Hulk and wants to do a movie, it was like, yes, this is why She-Hulk is great and this is why they should do a She-Hulk movie. She absolutely gets that character and I really want to see that movie. It's funny, isn't it? You never know when to click on those links online because I saw today <laughs> that Pablo Schreiber had said that he'd like a crack at a character like Daredevil or Wolverine and you're like, yeah, okay, Pablo Schreiber, that's fine. You uh, <laughs> you, uh, you carry on with your lepre- leprechaun shtick on, Amer- on American Gods now. Um, uh, but then you see something like Rachel Talalay wants to direct She-Hulk and you're like, yeah, but I, I, but actually, yes, yes, yeah. please do that. Um, but no, I, well, I th- I thought of, I mean, okay, this is coming a little bit from left field, but um, obviously, you you may remember back in the days of Star Trek: The Next Generation, um, there was a guy uh, he played the captain. Um, he was called Patrick Stewart. He was a British actor, <laughs> and I've always thought like that he just has this amazing resemblance to uh, a major comic book character. Um, I think it will be absolutely fantastic to to get Patrick Stewart to play um, probably the most famous bald character in comic books. Uh, of course, I th- I'm saying that Patrick Stewart should play Lex Luthor. <laughs> I was wondering where you were going with that. Um, <laughs> why? Uh, why particularly, Seb? I do. I, I like the idea though. Because he is bald and would be a very good Lex Luthor. <laughs> It would be a nice uh, little trilogy for him of these, like, I mean, I guess every role he does is mostly a bald role, but of these bald, like, <laughs> genre men, that would be a nice little capper. Yeah. Yeah. Who are the contenders for bald comic book characters, Seb? Kingpin must be up there. Um, I think I, 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 I would rank, um, I mean, obviously I was pretending that I didn't know about Professor X. I was trying yes. to do a rug pull joke. Uh, I, I would say that of the bit. bald comic book characters, I, I would probably say actually Professor X is top because Professor X embraces the fact that he's bald, whereas for Lex Luthor it's a source of resentment. So right. I would only put Lex Luthor number two and Kingpin number three. Fair enough. And and to be fair, like I think when it comes to screen examples of Lex Luthor, I think at least half of them have had hair at this point, or most of them have had hair at some point in their, uh, uh, in their, their on-screen no, depiction. they've they've... Uh, two of them have worn wigs and been well, that's what I mean. to actually be bald, and one of them had his head shaved at the end of the film. So they've all been bald eventually. Uh, what about uh, what about Lois and Clark? That's true. Did he did he never go bald in the show? He wasn't around think, for long enough to I do so. I don't think so. so. Yeah. yeah. The the best the best Lex. Hey, Seb. Um, okay. Well, obviously Caroline wins the pitch this week. Um, yeah. Because I'm, uh... I'm not disputing that one. <laughs> <laughs> Because Seb just basically went, he's bald. And while I did like it, it wasn't quite as well thought out as Caroline's. And yeah, I'd I'd watch the Jerry Ryan uh, She-Hulk movie. Um, so yeah, Caroline wins the pitch this week, uh, which which goes on to James's figures, which makes the scores. We're still not counting. To we're definitely still not counting. Um, if someone wants to go and count and tell us what the scores are, we'll send you a prize. 
That's that's <laughs> okay. my guarantee. If someone wants to actually count, I, I will. Uh, yeah, uh, we can't promise what the prize will be. Uh, it, <laughs> it might be a free comic book day comic, but it'll it'll be a prize all the same. <laughs> Um, okay, uh, well that brings us to the end of this week's podcast. Um, Caroline, thank you so much for joining us again. Um, I, hopefully it won't be too long before we have you back on the podcast because um, there are four characters who are meeting each other in Hell's Kitchen in the next couple oh of months. Oh my gosh, I might, forgot. I keep forgetting for. that's happening. Yeah, very exciting. At least three quarters exciting. <laughs> <laughs> oh, poor Al. um caroline uh is there anything you want to plug uh tell the listeners where they can find you online before before we uh say goodbye yeah i'll just say you can always find me on twitter i'm at caroline sita um i've been doing i'll plug a twitter thread that i've been doing where i've just been listing all of my favorite female characters from every genre and and um, medium, and it's been very cathartic and fun. So if you want a little insight into my psyche and the fictional female women that I love, you can go check that out. That has been fun. <laughs> I, I, I mentally applauded when uh, Dr. <laughs> Ellie Sattler turned up. In, oh, I'm uh, glad. She was a big uh, one. Great. Um... Okay, uh, uh, well, if you're enjoying um, not just Caroline, but the show as well, um, then you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, or your podcast app of choice. Um, you can support the podcast on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash cinematic universe. Uh, you can now find uh, more episodes of the show at cinematicuniverse.co.uk as well as all of our other content. Um, you can get in touch via Facebook, which we are now much more active on than before, and we will see all your messages and comments there. Um, on Twitter, which is now at cine underscore verse. And you can now send us an email to editorial at cinematicuniverse.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Goodbye. Bye. What's up, guys? Wait a minute. You guys aren't the real Avengers. I can tell. Hulk gives it away. Cinematic Universe returns in two weeks' time with Spider-Man Homecoming.